Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. In 2018, California voters passed Proposition 12, which prohibits farm owners and operators from knowingly causing any covered animal to be confined in a cruel manner. Prop 12 will be going into effect on January 1st of next year, 2022. With that date soon approaching, many are wondering how this will affect farms, especially the big industry ones. Here to talk with me about the major themes of California's Prop 12 is Judith McGeary. Judith is a livestock farmer, attorney, and founder of the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, which supports independent family farmers, protects a healthy food supply for consumers, and promotes common sense policies for agriculture. Judith, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to have you here, and it seems like there's never a shortage of farm bills and new policies that are looking at being passed for farming and agriculture. Yes, and some of them are pushed by people who want to see reforms to the current methods, people becoming much more aware of where their food comes from and how the animals, how the food was raised. Um, And some of it's pushed by big industry who want to keep us on the same path that we've been on of consolidating our industry into the hands of just a few companies and, you know, using conventional chemical-based monocultures. And so sometimes you see, you know, between both groups, both sets of movements fighting for laws and regulations, um, you see a lot um, all over the country. Yes, and that's where you come in is Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, or FARFA as it's commonly known as. You promote the ones that are the good policies for agriculture. We try. We try for what we call common sense policies, which are, among other things, things that look at scale um, and address, you know, we should have regulations that make sense for the scale of the operation. Somebody doing a few cans of jam in their kitchen shouldn't be regulated the same way as Heinz Foods. Mm -hmm. We also look at how ecosystems work and how the natural systems work and an agriculture that works with those natural systems so that it is both sustainable over the long term and healthier for both the people and the animals and the environment rather than systems that go, we're in charge, let's just look for the highest tech solution possible, and we're certain that the high-tech solution is what's right, which is frankly what most of conventional agriculture does. So that's what we mean when we say common sense policies. And one of the policies that's been in the news a lot is Proposition 12 from California. Now, I live in California, so I know all about it, but it seems to be in the news everywhere. It's a big deal all over the country because, you know, California is such a large state that assuming Prop 12 goes into effect and is enforced, it's going to affect you know, farmers all over the country because there are farmers in Iowa and farmers in the Carolinas, you know, and, and other states that are raising the calves and the pigs and the chickens that produce the veal and the pork and the eggs that are sold in California. 
not all of it, but large chunks of it. And so if Proposition 12 goes through as, you know, written and as intended, and it all pans out that way, those producers will either have to change their operations, which will cost money. They will have to bifurcate their operations. So like, here's the ones that are going to California and here's the stuff getting sold to the rest of the country. That's probably not going to work so well. So they'd be looking at changing their operations for you know, quite possibly, you know, the whole country or stop selling in California, which economically isn't really an option, all that good of an option for them either. So, yeah, this is absolutely nationwide implications. As founder and executive director of Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, plus being a livestock farmer yourself and an attorney, what's your thought about Proposition 12? So I think it's a reasonable step overall. I do want to say I wish we were thinking more holistically. So when we look at reforming, um, what Prop 12 does for, for those who haven't you know, followed it or you know, need a quick refresher is it sets minimum spacing requirements for these animals in order for their meat or eggs to be sold. So it says you can't sell veal unless the calf has had a certain amount of square feet of space. You can't sell eggs unless the chicken has had at least, you know, one square foot of space for each laying hen. And I'll get into the benefits of it in a moment. I'll I'll get into that. But first, I do want to step back and just say there is a lot more to raising animals in a way that is sustainable and humane and healthy, you know. So looking at it for the long-term future, for people who are eating those, for people who care about, you know, respecting animals, there's a lot more to it than just square footage. And I will say it's somewhat symptomatic of a problem we have, which is there's a lot of attempts to reform the conventional food system to make it like less horrible that don't take a holistic approach and don't go, well, okay, what we really want is to pour a lot of resources instead of arguing over square footage. Let's pour all of those resources into supporting people who are really doing it right, Mm -hmm. who are doing it not just minimum square footage, but have the animals out on pasture. <laughs> you know, they're, they're doing rotational grazing and building our soil. And, you know, these animals are inherently healthier and happier than any of the animals in confinement, regardless of the square footage. I always sort of have to step back. I wanted to step back and do this plug for let's take some of that energy and resources and, frankly, money that get poured into these efforts to reform and, and make the conventional system less bad and put it into building a system that really offers, you know, a dramatically better alternative. Having said that, you know what? Animals should not be kept in spaces that they can't move around. <laughs> it's not appropriate for animals to be crowded in so close together that they are incredibly stressed. Their immune systems are weakened from that stress and from the close contact. It also, by the way, something hopefully people are more aware of now or thinking a bit more about is a great breeding ground. I mean, when you shove animals really close together by the thousands, it's a great breeding ground for disease. So requiring that animals have a certain amount of space is, you know, a reasonable requirement. And it's not even in some ways that groundbreaking. California did this already before with Prop 2. Oh, when was Prop 2? That was in 2008. 2008. There we go. Thank you. And the big industry, first of all, by the way, screamed that was going to be the end of everything. And also screamed that was too vague. Because actually what Prop 2 did was in some ways more the way I've been phrasing it. They talked about reasonable space for movement and such. And Prop 12 said, okay, you didn't like how vague we were. We'll come in and we'll tell you what we mean. 
<laughs> Here's your square footage. This is what you need to be doing. Um, and it also added teeth. And it said that in the proposition, it included the ban on the sale of meat or eggs from animals that weren't kept in compliance with these minimum standards. Sounds to me like this bill is somewhat a start, but there's a long way to go. And I don't know, I guess I felt like a lot of the farm bills, especially ones that are on the ballot, the propositions, they seem like a good start, but I think that we're still at this point where we have kind of these minimalistic changes in farm bills. Well, and it's hard to bring a really good reform on a ballot initiative it because is. the nature of a ballot initiative is it has to be pretty simple. It has to be something that people really quickly and easily wrap their minds around. So, you know, the sentence of minimum square footage for animals, you know, wow, anyone can get that, you know. Supporting, you know, radical reform for soil health, you know, and, and pasture-based grazing and how that does that, that's a little more complicated. <laughs> and it's much harder to get on. And it's also much harder because you're not setting minimum. It wouldn't be as much about a minimum standard. You do have to be careful when you set minimum standards. When you set an absolute baseline and say, you know, you must do X. First of all, you need to be careful and think through and be like, well, you know, where are the situations where this could cause a problem, like legitimately cause a problem that we're not intending? And you really are almost bound to set it fairly low, you know, generally, because if you're going to set that and say you must do this, you, know, you can't raise animals and sell the food from them, you don't want to set it super high. <laughs> there needs to be space for flexibility. And so you end up with things like in this where it's, you know, one square foot for hen. Well, you know, that's better than the current situation, certainly, but obviously that's not really optimal. If you want to build an optimal system, you need to work with what are the barriers to those optimal? Why are people not doing more of it? Why are people not raising their animals out there on pasture? Which of those barriers can we get rid of? How do we support that? And that level of sort of complexity and nuance it isn't suited for ballot initiatives. So it does sound like this Proposition 12 is supported overall by small farms and advocates for that, like you and I. But the major meat companies, I imagine they're pretty concerned about Prop 12. Oh, yes. They're very unhappy. You know, the major trade organizations for the conventional system opposed it stringently. You know, something to explain and help people think about, and I even mess up on my language somewhere. I think I just said, you know, for the producers. And that's a slightly misleading thing to say when we're talking about the CAFOs, particularly for hogs and for poultry. Because when I talk about farmer, the image is the farmer having some level of independence and autonomy. The farmer has his farm and raises their animals, right? right? That's the sort of inherent message. Well, when we talk about the vast majority, an overwhelming majority, uh, particularly pork, you know, eggs and poultry raised in this country, that's just not true. It's raised under what's called contract grower operations, where the animals from the day they're born are owned by the company, someone like Tyson or Sanderson Farms or JBS. They own those animals from the first day and they contract with the farmer, generally known as grower in this relationship. They aren't called farmers, they're growers to grow out that animal. And the grower builds a facility to the specifications of the company 
and is paid by how much those animals put on weight or how many eggs they produce. Um, and then the company sells the meat and the eggs. So there's very little autonomy. And even where that's the case overwhelmingly in poultry, in pork, sometimes the farmers do own the animals. There is more ownership often of the animals, but there's only one buyer. You know, So if they're going to sell to that company, they have to meet that company's standards and do whatever that company says, and that's that. They don't really have another alternative. And so when we talk about, is this good for producers or not? Or, you know, when the industry groups come in and they're like, this is bad for producers, what they really mean is it's bad for the meat packing companies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's who they're really representing is those meat packing companies. If they were representing the producers, this wouldn't be the argument at all. There'd be completely different discussions going on if they were representing the farmers, the producers. But yes, these industry groups came in and opposed it and are continuing to talk about, you know, this is going to skyrocket the price of particularly bacon. You know, they they like focusing on bacon. Yes. Well, it is the gateway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good description. So, you know, is it probable that there will be some price increase? That's quite possible there'll be some. I mean, I wouldn't, uh, absolutely. But here's the situation. The reason meat is so cheap is because it is raised in a way that is absolutely not sustainable from an environmental perspective. It is inhumane for the animals. It is economically not viable for most of these growers. You know, the farmers are over and over in these industries on the verge of bankruptcy. It relies on meatpacking plants where the workers are treated terribly. And again, we saw some of this in COVID with the, you know, given the working conditions, how quickly those slaughterhouses became hot spots because the workers are packed, they're packed in shoulder to shoulder, working very fast under conditions that don't allow them to take breaks or do things to protect themselves. And so, yeah, guess what? If you actually make changes that make it less horrible for someone along that change, it might not be quite as cheap at the end of the chain. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I'm struggling with how sarcastic to be. <laughs> you know, it's hard. I mean, this idea that somehow there's this inherent right for there to be dirt cheap meat which, by the way, still allows these companies to be very, you know, the shareholders aren't going bankrupt. Unlike the farmers, right. the shareholders in these companies are not going bankrupt. The executives are not working on the edge of the poverty line. <laughs> you know, so what we're talking about is the ability to produce meat super cheap and still reap large profits from it and at the expense of everybody else at the expense of the farmers, the environment, and therefore our children in the future, at the expense of the workers, the animals being treated humanely, at the expense of having a resilient food system. We saw this again in COVID. I don't want to overbeat that drum, but it actually was amazing that finally, you know, what we saw during COVID, I think, opened a lot of people's eyes to this just-in-time confinement operation system is really very fragile. It can't withstand shocks. That's dangerous for all of us. Now, Prop 12 doesn't solve all of it. Again, you know, as we've already discussed, it's one little piece. (laughs) But along the way, yeah, I mean, we may be looking at slightly higher meat prices. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's okay with that. And we do need to discuss how to make sure that the people who genuinely struggle to afford to keep food on their table are able to keep food on their table for their family. But that needs to be a different discussion Mm -hmm. than how we raise our food. That's a social safety net discussion. That's a social values discussion of what are the safety nets that are needed because we, you know, as a society value, you know, children not going hungry in our country. Absolutely. That needs to happen. But the way to do that is to deal with the safety nets, not to make food artificially cheap by using these destructive methods. You're absolutely right about that, that it is a different discussion. And unfortunately, that's always an excuse for any kind of change in the system, whether it's farming or we hear it with other things, especially related with sustainability, like with electric cars or solar panels. It's always well, but what about the people who can't afford them? And it's a different discussion. Yes, that's an important issue to be concerned about as well. But we have to solve these. And especially, I think, an important thing to mention is that as these are all things dealing with sustainability is how actually climate change affects the lower class people. They actually can be affected the deepest with all of climate change. Exactly. The people who don't have an economic safety net are the ones who suffer worst from climate change. They're the ones that suffer worst from any disruptions to the system. Here in Texas, we have this horrific February freeze. Oh, wow. Living through that was not an experience that I really want to repeat. But there was a lot of points later. And there were people who were well off who went through difficult times in it. But by the numbers, the people that really suffered the worst were lower income because they didn't have various and sundry just simple safety net built in because they didn't have the money to have those safety nets on an ongoing basis within their own homes. They had less well-insulated houses. They had, you know, there's all sorts of things that went on that made that freeze horribly more damaging for people who were poor. So, yeah, the importance of building a resilient food system and addressing environmental issues is about justice for people of all economic classes. And these companies that have built this consolidated meat system that are putting out there like, oh my God, how horrible you might raise the price of meat. Look at the wages they pay their workers. I don't want to go too far afield, but you know, there's a lot of discussion in this country about the wage gaps and the wealth gap. And if you look at the last several decades, how much the middle class has shrunk, the incredible buildup of wealth at the very top, the poverty at the bottom. And a chunk of that is because of consolidation. It's because what we get is we get a few large companies that are able to control the markets and set the terms. And then they don't have to pay people decent wages. They can afford to pay their top folks obscene amounts of money. And it's all about that profit to the shareholder and to the executive, the C-suite. So if you want to start rebuilding, if you want to talk economic rebuilding, let's also talk small business. Let's talk about leveling the playing field. Stop allowing these big businesses to get away with abusive practices that enable them to control the market with artificially cheap food. And then the small businesses that can build you know, prosperity in local communities will have a chance. You know, that's long-term how we build greater resilience and food security for everybody. Yes. So these Big ag meat farms, they're obviously very concerned about how Prop 12 will affect them. Now, there are also some smaller farms that they may not be fully pasture-based, but they're not also part of the big industry 
Will Prop 12 affect them at all? So I don't want to give an absolute because the minute I give an absolute, there's going to be, you know, two, three, four farms there that are operating in a way that will run afoul of Prop 12. I mean, there's going to be somebody out there, but you don't have to be a fully pasture-based regenerative farm to do okay with Prop 12, to comply with Prop 12. Right. Like we talked, this is more a start. (laughs) Yeah. We're talking about, I think it was 40-something square feet for a veal calf. Actually, I will say, particularly with veal calves, I wouldn't be surprised. I would expect that there are some people raising veal calves right now, not part of the big industry, that will have to change their practices. I don't think it'll be that hard for them to do. They're going to be able to do it. But yeah, there there are going to be producers who are part neither of the CAFOs nor of the, you know, as you say, the pasture world, who will have to change some practices. And also then there are the small pasture-based farms and Do you feel they're mainly in support of Prop 12? I mean, my impression is yes. I say that with caveats. I think generally they support the concepts of something like Prop 12. I think there is fear, and this fear has been stoked by the big industry. I've watched a very careful, good communications campaign being done. The fear that, you know, well, they're coming for the CAFOs now. They're going to come for all animal agriculture next. And like all good fear-based communications campaigns, there is some truth. There certainly are people out there that want to see everybody go vegan and would like to ban all animal agriculture. Absolutely. There's, there's that sub- oh, there segment. Are, yes. And I try talking to them every so often when I bump into them at various conferences and those conversations never go well. But that's not the majority of the animal welfare community. It's not. I talk to people in the animal welfare community all the time. And they have legitimate, I mean, I'm disgusted by the way animals are treated in the CAFOs. Me I mean, too. Let's just step back for a second. Let's stop worrying about the animal welfare community and just say, what happens in those CAFOs is horrifically wrong. <laughs> so I don't think, and I think the vast majority of the people in the animal welfare community, whose you know, primary concern is animal welfare, when they are approached with that as the opening, I'm with you. Those cables are horrible. Animals should not be treated that way. And they hear that, yes, I raise animals and yeah, I raise animals for meat. They die. I, you know, my husband and I take them to the slaughterhouse. And here's what we do so that they have decent lives through it. They're not interested in trying to shut us down. They're not. But I will say, I mean, I think our community, there is fear in our community of the slippery slope. Well, if we support something like Proposition 12, does that mean, you know, basically we're setting ourselves down the path and supporting the very people who want to ban all of us? So I probably actually shouldn't have said yes to begin with. I should have said, you know, even hedged right up front. I think most of our folks support the substance, the concept and there's a, a significant number of them who are nervous about the legal mechanism and what it could mean. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are any large conventional farmers that are willing to change their practices with this going into effect? Well, again, I want to distinguish between the farmers and the companies. I think that the growers, the people raising the animals, are certainly prepared to do it. And they are just desperate to find a way to, for them to stay economically viable. Because the question is, will the companies pay them more for the meat and eggs? Because it is going to cost them more to do it this way. And if they're put into a situation where they bear the cost, but, you know, Sanderson Farms is like, tough luck. I'm not paying you anymore. You could see these, these, I think the growers are legitimately scared of that scenario. 
I suspect the companies will do the absolute minimum they have to in terms of paying just enough for enough growers to stay in business that they don't destroy their own supply chains um, and not a penny more. But they'll do what they have to do. I mean, they're not going to lose the California market. We are seeing a lot now with just organics in general, whether it's crops or livestock. We are seeing some of these small companies now being bought by some of the big ag companies. So I wonder if we could see some of the big meat producers starting to invest in more pasture-based, grass-based, regenerative farms as part of their overall business. I think there's certainly some movement there. I mean, look at General Mills buying Epic, you know, is the first example that comes to my mind. There's certainly some interest. And again, because... You know, to be in some ways, they're not ideologues. They're just looking for where they can make the most profit. And so where there's a really profitable business with a different model, they're perfectly happy to take them over as long as it keeps the profits flowing in. I think in general, and I'm not commenting on any one specific situation, I think in general, they will generally look, though, for their lowest common denominator. So generally, when a company like that buys out a pasture-based business, They'll keep it on pasture, like, you know, if that's the market, you know, if that's the labeling, but they'll probably look for how to do the absolute minimum to meet that label, you know, the labeling statement, as opposed to really working to maximize the regenerative nature of the business. I don't think, and that's just the nature, that's the nature of it, because if they don't, then they face profit shareholders who say, well, why is the profit margin not as high? Where's our quarterly report? Forget the 10-year outlook. Forget 50-year outlooks never even get discussed. 10-year outlook might be theoretically discussed, but what happens is, what is my quarterly report? What does that quarterly report show? So, you know, by the very nature of these huge publicly traded companies, they're going to look for the cheapest way to do it. And maybe they'll still be on pasture because that's the model that small business was built on. And, you know, that's the label claim and they have to keep that label claim to keep selling to that customer base. But they'll probably look for like, okay, so what's the least amount we can do to do that? We want reform. It doesn't have to be micro scale farms, but we need small, mid-sized family scale operations. You had mentioned that a lot of the concern of the big farms is the rise in prices. Now, another thing that I've been hearing about a lot in the news is the idea of meat shortages, specifically bacon, like you mentioned earlier. You know, if there is a shortage, it is because they drag their heels and say, no, 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 we're not reforming our system because we're going to count on the government to bail us out. Somehow we're going to count on, you know, they're playing a game of chickens. No pun intended, or maybe major pun intended. (laughs) No, pun intended. They're looking for someone to step in and stop this from taking effect. And so they're dragging their heels and saying, well, we can't make these changes because, you know, we just can't, we just can't, we just can't, on the assumption that someone's going to bail them out. And it's not necessarily a bad assumption, unfortunately. Look what happened with the meat packers during COVID. We saw meat, true meat shortages. You know, we saw, you know, shelves going empty entirely because of the just-in-time short-term profits system built by companies like Tyson. I mean, we've been predicting this. I mean, what I told reporters back then, it's like, like, people like me have been telling you, first major shock to the system, this is what's going to happen, <laughs> you know predictable. They knew it. I've been at conferences 
where the swine industry talked about the fragility of their system, although they didn't use that word. So they knew they were building a system that was fragile. They did it because it was the best way to maximize their profits. The system starts breaking down, as everyone knew it would within the industry. This was not a surprise. And, you know, they take out a full-page ad in the New York Times and I think the Wall Street Journal, I may be misremembering, but certainly New York Times and one other, saying, President Trump, you need to save us. The food system, you know, the meat system's collapsing. Oops, now, now let's not discuss why it's collapsing, who, who caused it to collapse. And Trump, like, 24 hours later, I think, issues the executive order that declared them to be essential and blocked the workers' ability to sue them, which meant that they were able to basically force their workers back into unsafe conditions. And that is the only reason we didn't see a bigger collapse last spring and early summer. The only reason the meat shortages weren't worse is because the government stepped in and saved them. So I would suspect that the big meat packers right now are trying that same, you know, another version of that same game here. We don't want to have to make these changes. We don't want to have to reform our system. So we're going to raise the specter of shortages in the hopes that the legislature steps in and reverses some provision of this or delays it or, you know, modifies it. That's what they're counting on. And the only reason there would be shortages is if they play that game of chicken and lose. <laughs> and they refuse to make these changes that they know they're supposed to make that right now legally they're you know supposed to be prepping for and they just drag their feet assuming they'll be bailed out and then if the bailout doesn't happen then yeah they're up a creek right i still don't think the shortages will happen i think it'll be pricier so yeah people won't get as much bacon you know it'd be pricier i think they'll make the changes they need to make in enough time but why admit that of course <laughs> Also, do you think that in any way Prop 12 could help the smaller farms, the pasture-based farms, be more available in supermarkets and to everybody? I'm not sure it'll make a dramatic difference. Again, I don't see the price changes becoming dramatic. You know, again, there'll be a rise, probably be some rise in prices. I don't think it's dramatic enough to, like, really level the playing field. Because... The space provided the animals is just one piece. I mean, they're still getting away with incredible environmental damages from these CAFOs, you know, all sorts of costs that they sort of offload onto society. So the meat will still be artificially cheap. Having said that, any change that helps people understand how artificially cheap meat is certainly is a positive thing because it gives people – one of the problems right now is even people who – are like, okay, the current system is terrible. I want to buy my meat from somebody who's, you know, raising them on pasture and, you know, all of this. They're still just at a gut level. You walk around the grocery store and then you walk to the farmer's market and you go, <gasps> you want how much per pound? <laughs> you know, it's almost inevitable. And that's a hard thing to overcome. Because even if someone understands intellectually, oh, that meat in the grocery store is artificially cheap because they abuse the workers and they abuse the animals and they abuse the environment, it's still a hard, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to like go and pay what food is worth at the farmer's market. So, yeah, I mean, I think that if the food is a little less artificially cheap, that's an education tool, among other things. As you've been talking about, the bill really just requires small changes that these conventional farmers have to take. Are there any other realistic alternatives that these farmers could look into? So again, I'll focus on the meat packers. I think one of the biggest things that would benefit the people, both the consumers, it would benefit the workers, it would benefit the overall resilience of the system, would be reducing the line speed 
in the slaughterhouse. And what that means, line speed is how fast, how many animals are processed per hour. And the reason I hone in on that is sort of like a, just a critical change, a simple one, but that really has huge ramifications, is it relates to so many things. Line speed is one of the biggest factors in how safe meat is. Because, you know, there's inherently, you know, you're dealing with live animals and then dead animals. The issue of contamination happening of bacteria from the intestinal system being you know, transferred to the meat and then carried to that whole process is so much higher if people are having to work really, really fast. That's just the nature of the thing. You know, that's how it works. So if we slow down the line speeds, one of the first things we do for consumers is we reduce the likelihood of foodborne illness. It's a huge step. We also make it less dangerous for the workers um, because right now the conditions are very dangerous. It's very easy, again, when those line speeds are moving that fast and the workers are having to use sharp knives, sharp blades, it's very easy to get seriously injured. And even with short of serious injury, the repetitive motions. Many of these workers come out with repetitive motion injuries. It's also, when you think about the very first step in the process of actually having to kill the animal, take the animal from you know, live animal to carcass, if you're rushing through it, you're more likely to do a mistake that can cause the animal to suffer. So slowing down those line speeds reduces the potential for suffering for the animals during the kill step. It's all good. It's all good, except that fewer animals per hour, or, you know, more man hours per pound, it's a little more expensive, a little less of a profit margin for the big guys. But the benefits are huge for everybody involved if we could just slow those line speeds down. I know you've been a big advocate over the past several years of the PRIME Act. Do you think that that's also part of the solution? Absolutely. The PRIME Act, I think that, you know, before you get into the details of the PRIME Act, I mean, I see things that provides more options for small-scale producers is a huge part of the solution. Let's make the small-scale pasture-based production a viable system. The PRIME Act is a bill that would allow small-scale producers to use what's known as custom-exempt slaughterhouses. So these slaughterhouses are subject to not all of the regulations that the inspected slaughterhouses are. They are subject to a lot of regulations. This isn't the Wild West. This is still a regulated facility, and it is actually still inspected. It's still government inspectors come to these custom-exempt facilities. Their exemption is from having an inspector standing right there watching while you're processing. But going back for a moment to the line speed, think about this. If you're processing 300 cows in an hour, which is what you know, some of these big facilities are doing, do you really think it's all that effective to have someone standing there watching them as they go, you know, 1,000-pound carcasses go whizzing by? I mean, come on. <laughs> Let's be realistic about what, you know, having a human inspector standing there really means. These custom-exempt slaughterhouses are small. They're going slow. I mean, line speed isn't even an issue. They might do 10 or 20 or 30 animals in an entire day. In a year, they will do as many animals as one of these large-scale slaughterhouses does in a week or less. So they're going very slow, very carefully, and they're much more affordable. They're small businesses. You know, they don't have to deal with some of the paperwork that the inspected facilities do. They can bring their prices down without sacrificing what they're actually doing on the ground. You know, it's a paperwork savings, addressing the scale prejudicial regulations. And it would be so wonderful for so many small farmers all over the country 
to have access and be able to sell meat that was processed at these slaughterhouses. So yeah, the Primass is a wonderful bill. It is Senate Bill 2001 and H.R. 3835. Yes, and for listeners who would like to learn more about the Prime Act, Judith and I did a whole show last year all about it. So if you like Judith and you want to learn more about it, then check the archives of this podcast and you have that discussed in much greater detail. Going back to Prop 12, it does small change, but it is a step in the right direction. And it kind of goes to the question of, as far as new farmers go, are more of them going the way of conventional farming? Or in terms of new farmers, do more of them want to take a more holistic approach? I think for everybody, it's incredibly hard to get into farming because land is so expensive. Having said that, of the people that are going into farming, we are certainly seeing more of them interested in you know, regenerative, sustainable, organic farming, many of those fail because even though the prices are still, you know, we were just discussing how high the prices were in comparison, that doesn't translate to high profit margin. There's a very small profit margin and it's a very difficult situation. Um, And the infrastructure isn't there and the regs are sort of tilted against you. Um, And so we are seeing more new farmers coming into the sustainable regenerative world We're seeing, unfortunately, a relatively high rate of failure, but it's still growing. I mean, overall, it's still growing. It's just not growing as fast as, you know, it needs to. And then in the conventional world, what you see with the conventional is fewer farmers, but owning more and more land. So not necessarily seeing their, frankly, their market share shrinking so much. But again, over and over, fewer people working that same increasing acreage. Interesting. So are there any other farm bills out right now which you think could have an impact? So I think in terms of bills, the single biggest one is the Prime Act. There are several others that are out there that lead up to, and to clarify language, so, you know, I do to start sort of laying the groundwork for what's to come. There's the Farm Bill, which happens every five years, approximately. Sometimes it takes a little longer for them to get it through. It's supposed to happen you know, every five years in Congress. And a lot of times there are bills that are filed in between those big farm bills that have very little chance of passing on their own, but are filed to generate the discussion around the issue in the hopes that ultimately makes it into the farm bill, that topic. And that is what we're starting to see now. We're, we're you know, year year and a half out from really digging heavily into a farm bill, the next farm bill. And so there's a lot of bills being filed to sort of generate, like, so what do we want to see in the next farm bill? So there's another good bill by Representative Pingree and Fortenberry with other reforms in meat processing. I don't remember the number. There's a bill out there by Senator Gillibrand to forgive debt by small farmers, since there's a lot of history of USDA really getting small farms into debt. And these small farms, when COVID hit, it was a breaking point for many of them. So there's this you know, debt relief bill. There's a lot of discussion within USDA because of executive orders to address consolidation and corporate control that you know, USDA is looking at a lot of reforms also. Whether they go anywhere is an open question. So you know, there's actually a lot happening in the early stages, it's kind of the infant stages of movement, both on the farm bill and within the agency, with a lot of interest in trying to 
promote smaller scale, family scale agriculture and decentralize our food system. And that does, you know, where that goes will depend a lot on how much people get involved and stay involved. And so there are easy ways people can take action. They can go to our website and sign up for action alerts at farmandranchfreedom.org. And we'll be keeping people posted because there isn't one silver bullet. But there's a lot of pieces. There's a lot of pieces in play, more than I've ever seen. I've been doing this coming up on 16 years now. We've never seen this many openings for reform. And so I'm really encouraged that there's the real potential. Me too. If we keep active, if we take action. Yes. And so we'll be sure to cover those for the ones that do go forward. So lots of more material for this podcast to come. We're just about out of time, but why don't you give the listeners once again the website where they can learn more about Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance and learn about these policies? So our website is farmandranchfreedom.org, all spelled out, farmandranchfreedom.org. And we, you can sign up for email alerts, send out email blasts. We've got our past email alerts all up there. You can go check out topics ranging from cottage foods to, you know, the Prime Act. And we also have tools under there under Take Resources for encouraging people to go meet with their legislators, meet with their elected officials. It's actually surprisingly easy I have had many people, I swear, I promise I'm not making this up, many people tell me it was surprisingly fun to, like, you know, go meet with their elected official. And it has a much greater impact than people realize. So we've got, you know, information about building a relationship with your elected officials where you can really, really increase your influence, your impact on what happens. So, folks, please check it out. Please consider joining. We are a membership organization. Because of the work we do, we're not eligible for government grants. And even most private foundations won't fund us because what we do is lobbying. So we rely entirely on or heavily on our memberships and on small businesses and events, people caring about these issues enough to step up and support us and enable us to do this work. Excellent. It's always a pleasure having you on this show and learning more about the farm industry and policies going on with it. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I love talking with you, Aaron. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of the show are now released every Wednesday. Next week, I interview Tim Richards of the Philosopher's Stone Ground. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all of my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.